Uh, I got to go just uh, a couple weeks ago. It was a great uh, time for me to get to go to Texas for Thanksgiving. I get to go, usually each year we get to go uh, to Texas. My sister and my brother, my brother-in-law, a lot of my family is in Texas. And so it's always a wonderful time for us to get to be together. I greatly look forward to that. I'm very close to my brother and sister and my brother-in-law and even some of my cousins. Uh, you may have heard me say this before. Some of my cousins I, I refer to as super cousins. Uh, we made up this term in my family, but we call them super cousins because my mom has an identical twin sister. And so I have some first cousins that, that technically, genetically, are half-brothers and sisters, if you really get down to it, because two identical twins, and so we call them super cousins. And so when I'm around them, there's this great time of, we get to spend time together, and it's like we can pick up with, if it had been since last year, we pick up right where we were, Right? Uh, there's long-standing uh, running jokes. Uh, we finish each other's sentences, all these kind of things. You don't have to explain anything like background because you know them so well. We have a shared, shared history and experience. And there's just something that can't replace that. And so the, that closeness that you have with family or you have with brothers and sisters, it just it's easy. And, I, and I'm very, very grateful for that time when I get to spend, particularly with my brother and sister. And I know some of you know exactly what I mean. Maybe it is your brothers and sisters. I hope that that's true for you, that you have family that's so close that you just kind of click in that way and you can pick up in that way. Some of you, it may not be brothers and sisters, but it might be other people in your life. See, sometimes it's not literal blood brothers and sisters, but we still sometimes refer to people as brothers and sisters. If you think about it, we, we say it in different ways. Uh, I, I've been on teams uh, we spend a lot, a lot of time together practicing and working and working hard, and you refer to them as your brothers in some way. Uh, some of you have been in the military, and you think about uh, a band of brothers or your brothers in arms or those that you go to war with or you go through really difficult things, and you refer to them as your brothers. Or maybe a, a fraternity or a sorority, say fraternity brothers and sorority sisters, people that you go through these different experiences with, and you have this shared experience, and you refer to them as, as being called brothers and sisters. And I was thinking about just that dynamic. Hopefully that's true for us here as a church family. You know, the Bible talks about when we get saved and we become believers and we seek to follow Jesus, that we are now brothers and sisters from the very beginning. You read that in the, in the New Testament of the early church calling each other, living like a family, calling each other brothers and sisters. So often in the epistles of the New Testament, it's, it's addressed to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and it says that so often and in so many different ways. And I was thinking about just why we say that, and the fullness of what that means to call someone a brother or a sister, is I kept reading this passage this week in Hebrews chapter 2, because in this passage that we're looking at, it calls Jesus our brother, and it tells us that he's our brother which is a pretty wild thing to think about. In fact, in light of what we started last week, if you've been with us, we just started last week, a short series for Advent, kind of selections from the book of Hebrews. And I said last week, the book of Hebrews is a sermon letter written to an early church that's struggling. They're struggling with the, the hardships of life and all the things that are going on. Or if we were to put a summary statement over the book of Hebrews, we would say Hebrews is the journey from weariness to rest, people who are struggling, and the way in which we're being encouraged to move from this weariness to truly being able to rest is to see Jesus. 
To see Jesus is better than everything else. That's really kind of the summary statement of Hebrews. Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than the high priest. He's better than the way that God spoke to us in the past that we talked about last week. But today I want us to think about how Jesus is the better brother. In fact, he's our perfect brother. And I want us just to think about that idea together this morning as we look at Hebrews chapter 2. And so the way we're going to look at it is like this. First, I just want us to consider, how is Jesus our brother? That's the first thing. How is he our brother? Secondly, why is it so important? When we think about what it's saying here that he's our brother, there's some great big theological truths that hang on this that are really, really important. So why is it important that he's our brother? And then lastly, what practical difference does it make in our life? Right? So how is Jesus our brother? Why is it important? What difference does it make? particularly in our journey from weariness to rest, particularly in our struggles. And so let's just start with how Jesus is our brother. And there's an important thing to consider here, because if you were with us last week, we looked at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1, and sometimes we say Hebrews 1 is the highest of the high Christology. What we mean is it tells us this soaring truth of who Jesus is, that he is the creator God of the universe that has always existed, that holds things together by the power of his word, And so last week we said Jesus is God, and that he is the one who created all things, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And it's this soaring, great, big, huge idea of who Jesus is. And now we're going to say that eternal God that upholds all things by the power of his word, that holds us into existence because he says so, is our brother. And in some ways that seems like a long way off. How is that possible that the God of the universe who created us is our brother. And the answer tells us, we start to get into it as we get into chapter 2, that Jesus is our brother because he humbles himself and he comes to us and he takes on flesh. So we celebrate at Christmas. The incarnation, the arrival, the long-promised Messiah has stepped down into time and space with us. And what it tells us, if you look at verse 9, it says, but we see him for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. That he's humbled himself, and he comes in this way, and he's lowered himself. Or verse 17 says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Or in verse 14 it says, that since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And so what we get is that Jesus comes to us, and he humbles himself in this way, to come to be in this life with us, to experience it in all the same ways that we have. And so by his humbling himself, that's kind of the first step of how we can say Jesus is our brother, that he takes on flesh. The Apostle Paul talks about this very clearly in Philippians chapter 2, when he says this, Philippians 2, 5 to 7, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. If you go to seminary, it's one of those things they write, make you write papers on. Right? That verse there, verse 7, but he emptied himself. Like, What does that mean that Jesus emptied himself? Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality a thing to be grasped, but he purposely chose to empty himself. He humbled himself to come into this life to take on the form of a man to be born of a woman, to come into this life in this way. And so when we start to talk about Jesus being our brother, it's because he purposely chose 
to give up what was rightfully his on his throne in heaven, ruling and reigning over all things, to be humble, to come into this life, to come in the form of a man. C.S. Lewis, I love this quote. I, I come back to this every Christmas. But C.S. Lewis, as he talks about the idea of the incarnation, he says, if you want to get the idea of it, he says, the eternal being who knows everything and created the whole universe became not only a man, but a baby, and before that, a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think of how you would like to become a slug or a crab. You start to get the idea of the humility of Jesus of coming to us. And so the first thing when we start to think about how is Jesus our brother is that he willfully humbles himself by coming in the flesh. But that's not all. There's more to it than just that. Not only does he come to us and he humbles himself in the flesh, but if you look at verse 14 and you look at verse 17, he says that he comes and he shares in the flesh and blood and he partakes of the same things. He enters this life and he partakes of the same things that we do. At the beginning of chapter or verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. And so Jesus comes in the flesh to us, but he's made like us in every respect, and he partakes of the same things. And I don't want you to gloss over that. You go, yeah, yeah, I know that. I've heard that. Of course, if he becomes human, that's part of it. He's, he's flesh and blood. He's walking in his own creation. That makes sense. But I really want you to think about what all that means. Even think about that, that quote from C.S. Lewis. That God humbled himself to become a baby. And before that, a fetus inside of a woman. The act of that humility to come to us and go through that. And so Jesus came and he experienced birth. And he experienced adolescence. The Bible tells us that he had brothers and sisters. That he experienced what it's like to literally be a brother with his brothers and sisters and live in a house with them. He grew up knowing disappointment and betrayal. He grew up with brothers and sisters that picked on him. Right? They gave him a hard time. He went through all of those things, but he also went through betrayal and sadness, losing loved ones. Right? The Bible tells us that Jesus at 12, it's Mary and Joseph, and they're raising Jesus. Joseph being his earthly father, when his ministry starts at 30, Joseph is nowhere to be seen. Somewhere in there, his father passes away. And Jesus went through that. The emotions that go with that of losing loved ones that are so close to you. But not only that, he had to get up and go to work. He worked as a carpenter. He lived in a government that was incredibly harsh, that often perverted justice. He comes to the end of his life and he's falsely accused and he's arrested and he's tortured and he's murdered and he partakes in all of these things. And so when the Bible starts to talk about Jesus being our brother, I want you to think about the way we think of it. We call someone who's our brother that has shared in similar experiences with us. And what the Bible is telling us is that Jesus is God with us who shares and partakes of the same things. That he knows what you go through. That we can call him brother. He knows everything. That he has come and humbled himself in this way and gone through all of these things. And so we can say Jesus is our brother that he humbles himself. And he partakes in all the same things that we do. But there's also just the very literal sense in which he is our brother. And I know this is probably the most obvious um, 
won't spend a long time on this, but just briefly. When Jesus takes on flesh and he enters into creation, he goes through the same things that we do, and he is part of humanity, very, very real in this way. Although he is the creator and sustainer of all things, he's fully God and he's fully man, he goes through all of this. And so I want you to think about this for just a second because it's an important point for all of us just in the way that we love people that we come into contact with in our life. Every single person you meet is made in God's image. And in fact, if we go back far enough, we all come from a common ancestor. If you go back, our, our, our uh, uh, family trees converge. If we go back far enough, and if you go back to the very beginning and you look at what the Bible tells us, this God bestows consciousness and he makes the very first people and he brings and he forms Adam and Eve and he sets them in the garden. If you were to go to Adam and you say to Adam, who is your father? What would he say? Who's Adam's dad? Right? Like, I, know, I know that's really obvious and pretty straightforward, but God is his father. Very literally. He creates them and he sets them and starts them in this way. And then every single one of us in humanity goes back to the same, that God is our Father, and starts in this way. And when Jesus comes, and he chooses to take on humanity, and he's born of a woman, and he comes into this, he is counted with us. He's very literally our brother. And if you think about the, the whole of the world, every person you meet goes back to the same beginning, made in God's image. And there's huge implications to that. We don't think that way oftentimes. We're easily divided people up into categories and makes differences and uh, ethnicity and, and backgrounds and all sorts of things and we divide them in those ways, but that's not the way God originally designed us. We're all made in his image. And if we really hold fast to what scripture tells us in that, that should eradicate all racism. It should tear down walls of our differences with people. It should give us opportunities to truly love people in the way that God has loved us. And so when Jesus enters in, he chooses to be human, to partake of all these things, to come in the flesh. He is our brother. Now, why is that so important? This passage says some great, big, huge things that hold together by Jesus coming in the flesh. And they're of the utmost importance of what we say we believe, what we confess we believe as followers of Jesus. And there's three things that I want you to look at here to see in this passage that he says. The first is that it says that he came in the flesh so that he could taste death for us. That's in verse 9. But then it says that he's come so that he might taste death, and then out of that he frees us from the fear of death and destroys its power. That's in verse 14 and 15. And then lastly, it tells us that he's come to offer mercy by making propitiation for our sins. And all three of those things have, uh, have as a component the importance of him coming in the flesh and being our brother and experiencing the things that we do and walking in this life in those ways. And they're huge ideas. They're great, big, really important ideas. Great, big picture. And so I want us to think about this for just a second, why that's the case. And so if we go back, uh, anytime we read the Bible, anytime we come to Scripture and we hold... It's always fitting in the grand narrative of what God's revealed to us in the whole of Scripture. And so we have to have some understanding of the fullness of the big story to get what he's really saying here. And so just real briefly here, if we go back to the very beginning, God's created every one of us in his image to know and to love him. To love God and to love people, but to have that relationship with God, to walk closely with him, that's the way he creates us. And so the very first people 
He creates and he gives them essentially one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I, I like to summarize that in saying God says to them, trust me for what's good and evil. Don't seek to define that on your own. Trust what I tell you as your creator and sustainer. I know better than you do. And if you know the story, you can go read it in Genesis 2 and then Genesis 3. Adam and Eve decide they can do it on their own. We don't need you to tell us we can do this on our own. But what happens? God promises them. He says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day that you do, you will surely die. And it means a couple things. One, they're going to die spiritually speaking. Their relationship with God and the way that he originally designed it is now broken. Because instead of trusting God, the creator, redeemer, sustainer of all things, that holds all things together, they say, no, we can do it on our own. And that brings this break in. And I want you to think about why. What happens in that moment when we choose to sin and ignore God and the world he created? God is perfectly holy in every way. He is perfect in all his characteristics. And when we rebel against him, when we sin against him, when we tell him we don't need him, because God is so perfect in every way, his holy, righteous anger rests on us. God's wrath. We don't like to talk about that, particularly in our culture. Oftentimes we downplay it. But the idea of wrath is it is a fixed part of God's character. God has to, because he's loving, not in spite of being loving, but because he's loving, he has to be angry at all things. He has to be against all things that are ultimately destructive, or he would cease to be God. He can't just say, oh, well, that's not that big of a deal, because he is so perfectly righteous in every way. And so when we sin, and we rebel against God, and we start to embrace things that are destructive, and evil and bad that go against the way in which God has created all things God's wrath rests on us. And there's a break in our relationship. We no longer have this perfect union with him that we were created for. And so that comes into the world. But because God is perfectly loving and merciful, he makes a promise right there at the beginning with Adam and Eve. I'm going to send one, Eve, through your seed that is going to redeem this. It's going to fix what is broken. See, in our sinfulness and in our rebellion, we can never do enough to, to bridge that gap. We can never go back to perfection. We've lost it. And so God says, I'm going to send this one who's going to come. And so he sends Jesus. And it's talking about here in Hebrews 2, the fulfillment of this promise that goes all the way back to the very beginning that God is going to send one to set things right. It's going to be born of a woman. It's going to come into creation. That God himself is going to come. Now when he first makes that promise to Eve at the beginning, we don't know that fully, but as you read through the fullness of the Bible, it becomes clearer and clearer that no man's going to be able to do it. And it's going to have to be God himself that comes. And so Jesus comes and he steps in to succeed where we, feel, where we have failed. And so he comes to destroy the power of death, the death that entered because of our rebellion. But we, we see that clearly in the world. We know that's true. Right? He tells us here uh, in verse 14 and 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who 
who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, right? Adam and Eve, sin enters. He says, you will surely die, and they do. Romans 5 tells us sin enters through one man, and sin spreads to all men, and all men die. Does anyone want to dispute that? That from the very beginning of time, that every generation, every person ultimately dies. And he says we're subject to that because of our sin, a lifelong slavery to death. Death is universal, and it's undeniable, and it's looming in all things. Oftentimes we pretend like it's not true. Right? We just we put it away. We do our best to put it out of our mind and pretend like it's not there and it doesn't exist, but it is. And it's always there. And every person that you know and every person that you love that's coming for them is as it is for you. And it says that we've been subject to that, a lifelong slavery. The seriousness of death. And the Bible tells us that death is entered because of our sin. The wages of sin is death. And we're all subject to it. It can bring a fear. It can bring fear for a whole lot of reasons. One of the reasons that it's fearful is the Bible tells us that we're going to die and we're going to stand before God. We're going to stand before the one who created us, who gave us our conscience, who gave us his law, who told us how the world works, who we are accountable to, and we're going to stand before him and give account. That's pretty scary. You stop and think about it. I've used this analogy for years, but how would you have liked it this morning if you came in and on the screens was suddenly your face and everything dumb and angry that you said this week? There's a video of everything you did this week that wasn't great. Or, or do you want better? It was every thought you had this week. And everybody got to see every thought that you had this week and what it was like and every time you blew it. That'd be pretty awful, wouldn't it? And then we're going to stand before God in death and give an account for everything in our life. That's a pretty scary thing. I think it makes sense to say we've been subject to a lifelong slavery. This fear of death that's there. Now, some people will deal with that. I was talking to a friend not that long ago. He told me, well, I don't really believe in any of that. I think when we die, we just go to sleep. It's just over. Right? This is all one big cosmic accident. And when we die, we just go away and that's the end of it. I don't believe anyone really believes that and holds to that. I don't know how you do. How, how do you live like that? Because if that's true, that this is all one big cosmic accident and we die, and when we die it all goes away, you realize that every single person who ever lived will die. And every memory you have and everything that you did will not be remembered ever, anywhere. And quite frankly, everything we're doing is meaningless. On a long enough timeline. No, you don't like, we don't like to talk about that because that gets real depressing real fast. But if you start to think of whether you believe in God and you're going to stand and give an account before him, or you try to put that out of your mind and say there's nothing, there's nothing after and there's nothing coming, both are pretty bleak. Both are pretty depressing. And, and in a lot of ways, it can be very scary. And so it tells us here that Jesus comes and he enters in to free us from this lifelong slavery. To deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And he comes and steps in to do that. Now how does he do that? And there's a couple pieces of this that we really need to think about. The first is that he steps in and he takes on flesh. 
right? Verse 9, but we see him for a little while who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So Jesus humbles himself and he's made lower than the angels and he comes in the flesh so that he can taste death for us. So that he can die. Right? If you put together what we talked about last week, that Jesus is the creator of all things. He's the exact imprint of the very nature of God. He is God himself who upholds all things by the power of his word, who's always existed. Jesus is indestructible as God. And so he humbles himself, he empties himself, takes on this frailty so that he can die. He chooses to give that up so that he can die. Now, that doesn't answer the question of how it fixes it, but it does tell us that he says that he will come and die, that he's taking on flesh so that he can die, so that he can destroy the power of the devil. Right? Do you see that in verse 14 and 15? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He's going to die so that we, so he can destroy the power of death. He can deliver us from this slavery. Well, how does that work? He comes to us and he hangs on a cross and he dies, but how does that fix the problem? Verse 17 tells you how it fixes the problem. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make the propitiation for the sins of the people. Now that's a whole lot of big ideas in one, right? But I want us to see how those are connected and why they're so very important that Jesus came in the flesh. And so take the second part first. How does propitiation destroy the power of death? How does it destroy the power of the devil? Jesus comes to solve the problem once and for all by making propitiation. What does that mean? It means in our sin that God's wrath rests on us because we are sinful people that have ignored him, because we've rebelled against him, because we've shaken our fists at our creator and said, I can do this on my own. And because God is perfectly holy, righteous, his wrath rests on us. But thankfully, mercifully, God is loving and he is gracious. And so he says, I will send Jesus to come and do for you what you can't do for yourself. And so propitiation is taking God's wrath and turning it to favor. And the way in which Jesus does that is he steps into this life and he takes on flesh and he's tempted in every way that we are. He experiences everything that we do, but does so without sins. Does it perfectly in every way and in every moment and in every thought. He continues to entrust himself to God in everything that he does. And he comes to the end of his life and he deserves all the blessings. He doesn't deserve death. The wages of sin are death, but Jesus is perfect in every way. But he willingly chooses death on our behalf. And what happens on the cross is that Jesus says, the perfect sinless one says, I will go and I will lay down my life for you. And in so doing, God is still perfectly just. His wrath remains. Sin has to be dealt with or God ceases to be God. And so Jesus says, I will take your sin for you. 
all those that will put their faith in me, I will take your sin upon myself. 2 Corinthians 5. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we could become the righteousness of God in him. And so he does. And he takes our sin upon himself. That's what happens on the cross. All those that put their faith on him, he becomes the sin, and God pours out his holy, righteous anger on Jesus, and it comes to nothing. And he takes our place, and he empties death of its power. He deals with sin once and for all. He becomes the perfect, merciful high priest that stands as our intermediary between God and us who are sinful, broken people. And he brings it all on himself and he brings it to absolutely nothing. And in so doing, God is perfectly wrathful. Sin is dealt with, but he's also perfectly just and he's perfectly merciful. And if you put your faith in Jesus, he accepts Jesus on your behalf. I want you to think about that. He is our perfect brother who does for us what we could never ever do for ourselves. And he brings it to nothing. And then in the resurrection, as Jesus is raised bodily from the dead, it shows us that his sacrifice has been accepted, that sin and death has been defeated. Jesus blows a hole in the back of death and he walks right through and he says, put your faith in me and come walk through with me. He does for us as our perfect brother what we could never, ever do for ourselves. So I want you to think about how he destroys the power of death. How he frees us. It tells us here that, that through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What can Satan do to you? What power does he have? He's the great accuser. He's the great manipulator. He can stand and say, JP is a sinner. And he's right. Right? He can say that. He can come and accuse me of my sinfulness. And he can continue to say those things. You deserve God's wrath. You deserve hell. Because you have shaken your fist at God over and over again. That is the power that he has. And as Jesus, my perfect older brother, steps in and does for me what I can't do for myself. And Satan comes and says, JP deserves hell. And Jesus steps in and says, he's with me. I've done for him what he cannot do for himself. And he says, yeah, yeah, but he's a sinner. And he says, no, that has been paid for. And now in my perfect righteousness, he is clothed with the, the, with the fruits of Jesus' perfect life. Right? We, we sing the song sometimes of, of uh, before the throne. When Satan tempts me to despair of the guilt that's within, I look up and see him there who made an end to all my sin. My perfect older brother steps in and says, I've got you. And when Satan tempts us in that, and he attacks, and he does, and he comes to you, and he tells you you're worthless, and you can't do it, Jesus steps in and says, no, but I've done it for you, and you're mine. And he empties him of all of his power. The wages of sin are death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
And Jesus does for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. He's our perfect older brother. He is the one who has done it for us. And so there's two things that I want us to consider. There's a whole bunch of things. But there's two I want us to consider today as we end, as we think about that. And you see why it's so important that Jesus comes in the flesh to do for us what we haven't done, to be tempted in all those ways, to be able to hold God's justice and mercy and perfect balance, to offer us this eternal life in Him. But I want us to think about what does that mean for us today, where you are right now today in your life and the things that you're dealing with. Verse 18, he says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Or verse 14, he partook of the same things. Or verse 17, he's been made like his brothers in every respect. And I want you to think about what that means. I had two different conversations this week with dear friends. And we're talking about how many people that we know right now that are suffering with different things in their life. And in both conversations, both said to me, I've never seen it quite like this in my life. So many people suffer. Now, there's always suffering. But just in our own sphere of influence and friends and what's going on, both said, I've not seen it quite like this. And as I sat and thought about that, how many people are struggling and difficult things that are going on, and you want to help. You want to alleviate it. You want to step in and do things that you can to help. And then sometimes you don't know what the answer is. And it's hard. And we were lamenting that fact. Like, I want to help, but I'm not exactly sure what to do in this situation. And it dawned on me that Jesus knows exactly what that's like. When Jesus walked among us, and he comes and you read through the Gospels. That he understood what it was like to, to wrestle with people's suffering right in front of him. And I don't mean that Jesus didn't know how to fix it in the way I don't know how to fix it. But I know that he felt what it was like. And I want you to think about this. When Jesus walked on earth and he came to each person, there's no sin in and of himself. He's perfectly sinless. So that means he's fully present with every single person he sees. And he's feeling fully what they're going through. Every single, can you imagine what that would be like? To be fully feeling what every person in the room is going through in their life in fullness. And Jesus comes and he does. That's why you see him weeping. And you see him going with people and being gracious and kind and walking with them. And in everything he feels all of it. That's why we sing songs like, Man of Sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came. And he feels all of that. And so I want you to hear this. I know so many of you are suffering with difficult things in your life. There is nothing that you are going through right now that Jesus doesn't know fully. Nothing. There's nothing that he goes, I can't relate. There's nothing that you're wrestling with that he's indifferent to. That in his perfect love and mercy and the fullness of who he is, he knows every single bit of it. And it tells us in verse 18, for because he himself suffered when tempted, he's able to help 
those who are being tempted, that he's with you. It says God is near us in our struggles, that he's with us in our mourning, that he's with us when things are difficult. And so please be reminded of that this morning, that Jesus knows what you're going through. But the second thing is not only that he knows, but he's come to do for you what you haven't been able to do perfectly. He took your place, and he does all of it. And then he offers, by grace through faith, the perfect fruit of his life. And he offers us unity with God because of what he's done. But then there's this amazing thing that it says here. I've never really fully been able to get my head around in verse 11 and 12, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Right? So are all of us, the way in which we are sanctified, the way in which we are saved is by what Jesus has done. He is the source. But then look at what it says right after that. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Follow me on this for just a second. I don't know how many of you have brothers and sisters and that you're proud of them. There are people, or maybe not blood, maybe it's your closest, whatever. I'm very blessed. I have two brothers, one that's passed away and an older sister, and they're all great. I mean, really, truly. My older sister, uh, is a brilliant writer. And she loves Jesus. And I tell you that because the things that she writes helps you love Jesus more. And it's amazing the things that she writes. She's incredible. My younger brother Jed, who's, who's passed away, was one of the most giving people I've ever met. He never had any money. And somebody would say, uh, I need money for this. And Jed would reach in his pocket and hand it to him. Not realizing he didn't have any money to pay his bills now, but that was his, that's who he was. My youngest brother, Jeremiah, is a pastor in Houston. And Jeremiah is one of the greatest evangelists I know. He loves Jesus, and he loves planting churches, and he loves telling people about Jesus. And I am, honestly, I can say I'm so proud of my brothers and sisters. I'm so thankful to have them in my family, and that makes sense to me. But what doesn't make sense to me is that Jesus looks at me and he loves me in the same way. That he sees me as his younger brother that he's proud of. That he's not ashamed to call his brother. Do you see why that's so hard sometimes to get our head around? Because anything good that I will ever do in my life is because of Jesus. Because of what my older perfect brother has done for me and yet it says that he's not ashamed to be called our brother. That he's going to stand and sing your praises in the congregation. Can you imagine? You're going to end Jesus. You're going to breathe your last breath. You're going to close your eyes in death. You're going to step through death because Jesus has blown a hole in the back of it. And he's going to take you by the hand. And he's going to say, well done, good and safe, faithful servant. Here's my brother. What? And it's all what he's done. And nothing else. Is that not amazing? Is he not the perfect brother? 
Is he not better than anything else? Praise be to God that he loves us so much that he has come to do for us what we can never do for ourselves in Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious, glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that you love us so much that you've come and humble yourself to step into your own creation, to take on all the frailties of life and all the struggles so that you could do for us, so that you could bring us back into this relationship that we were created for. We thank you. I pray that as we come up to Christmas this year and this season, as we wrestle with these things, as we think through these things, we pray that it would land on us afresh this year, that we would see how greatly you love us, what you've done for us, that you love us so much that you make much of us despite it being your doing. And so I pray that you would help us to see that afresh, that we would grow in our love and our appreciation, that we would want to honor you in everything that we say and do. And we pray all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.